This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. My favorite story of the week is a takeout coming out of the HB6 scandal by Andrew Tobias. And Andrew Tobias is here today to talk about it on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Andrew Tobias and my colleagues, Chris Wernowski, Laura Johnston. Happy Friday, everybody. Happy Friday. Friday. Wow, listen to that pep. So much different (laughs) than when I say happy Monday. (laughs) It's good to hear your voices with that much energy. Hope you all have a good weekend. Let's begin. What did Neil Clark, one of the people charged in the HB6 bribery scandal, have to say in interviews with reporter Andrew Tobias? This is a great story. Andrew Tobias, let's begin. What are the takeaways from this story you published yesterday? It'll be in The Plain Dealer on Sunday. So I think kind of one of the key takeaways from it is that we have a better idea of what the FBI investigation may have entailed uh, during the House Bill 6, kind of like lead up to the actual charges coming out. A lot of the things that appear in the charging documents that the listeners might have seen that they uh, put in court when the arrests happened, basically detailing the government's case, has quotes from uh, Neil Clark and others. And Neil's are kind of more memorable. People might remember. Uh, I don't know if I can say the words that he said on this podcast, so I'm just going to steer clear of it. But um, <laughs> but we didn't really know where this came from. I mean, clearly, somebody was recording his conversations. And so what I learned from talking to him is that basically he did what we did, which was look at these charges when they came out. And he said, basically, I remember those conversations. I know where he was. And so what he told me was that in January 2019, he met with a couple of guys who said that they were real estate developers. Uh, They're working at a hotel in Cincinnati. And they hired him because they're looking for help to amend a bill that would legalize sports betting so that their hotel that they were planning could have some kind of betting window or kiosk or something like that. And so his job was to try to influence that legislation so that their project would benefit. And over the course of the next six months or so, he had a couple of or several meetings with these guys. He had phone conversations with them. And it was those meetings that the comments that he made that were recorded came from. And so the final one was that on September 23rd, 2019, there's a passage in the complaint that refers to Clark and the House Speaker, Larry Householder, who was also arrested, and a few others meeting and talking about House Bill 6. But it turns out that it appears that that meeting was kind of set up to talk with these guys about their sports betting angle. And uh, Clark had been telling them, you know, advising them how to make a political contributions to a C4 that Larry Householder controlled, how you make sure it's a number that he'll, uh, that'll get his attention, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five thousand $25,000. He made some comments at some point about the only problem with pay to play is when you do it too much because then people notice. I mean, so there's just all of this stuff that understanding more about where uh, it came from kind of brings it into sharper focus, not only how the investigation went, but also kind of raises questions about if the FBI is 
you know, so I guess I should say that uh, he believes that these developers actually were either FBI informants where they were legitimate developers just, you know, recording and passing information along or that they're actual FBI agents where they set up, you know, fake personas, a fake business, uh, kind of do a sting operation. And I kind of lean towards the latter in that I couldn't actually locate these people. And okay, all right, usually, well, let's get to that in a minute. But I, I, okay. I, we're presuming everybody knows all the details about HB6 and we kind of raced into the details of the story without setting the stage. So so HB6 is the nuclear plant bailout that First Energy is is alleged to have spent $60 million for bribes to get the Larry Householder is elected as House Speaker and then to do their bidding to to get this. They also got um, some rate uh, legislation in HB6 that makes them very rich because they make a lot of money. Larry Householder was indicted. Neil Clark is a prominent lobbyist, very influential guy in Columbus in the State House. He was indicted. Some others were indicted. They have not talked previously. So So what's really striking here is Neil Clark gave you interviews for the first time since this broke midsummer and and it's fascinating the illumination he gave so these these two guys you're talking about that you think might be FBI agents you, you did go searching for their company for their names for anything and and right. you know let's let's set this up right they they were talking about building a big hotel in Cincinnati. So these are not nobodies. These are the kinds of people where if you do a basic internet search, you'll be able to track them down. You did a lot more than a basic internet search, and you can't find anything to say that these people actually exist. Right. Yeah. Social media. We have a Alexis Nexus account, which is like private investigators typically or lawyers might use to do research on people. And I, I could find no uh, evidence of these guys existing. Now they have generic names, so it's possible that it's just a uh, needle in a pile of needles and I just didn't find them. But, you know, also if I were to make a fake person, maybe I would choose a, a you know, that's, that's what I would do is pick kind of a generic name and make, make them hard to find. I loved the part where these guys are looking to get on like corporate jets and other posh things to meet the movers and shakers. They're looking for introductions. And Clark tells you, I haven't done corporate jets in 20 years, man. That's not the way we do business anymore. And he was kind of surprised at their these guys, their lack of awareness of how politics work today. Yeah, his sort of, you know, in talking to him, he believes that they were uh, maybe coming off as unsophisticated in part. You know, they're trying to get him to do something incriminating. But also, I think that, you know, he made a comment about I couldn't believe how naive these guys were. But in retrospect, they're just trying to get me to explain everything so that they could say it out loud and then get me saying it. So but the, um, but the amazing thing is he's talking about how naive they were. He told you he suspected when they came at him about the sports gambling window in their hotel, the legislation they wanted that they might be undercover, <laughs> but then he shoots his mouth off about HB6, and he said to you, well, I didn't think I was in any trouble for HB6, so, you know, I, that wasn't even on my mind. I mean, he made what the what the prosecutors are saying are pretty incriminating statements about HB6 to guys that he's telling you he thought were, were working in an investigation. Kind of bizarre. Yeah, I'm not really sure I completely understand uh, Neil's motivations in talking to me. I mean, I think that he feels that some of the comments that he made um, were out of context. And, you know, for instance, he was telling uh, his clients to make a contribution to the political group that Larry Householder allegedly controlled. Um, but then he said, apparently he told him not to give it to him because they didn't get the legislation that they wanted. So there's things like that where I think he wanted to set the record straight. But beyond that, I'm just I'm not really sure. I mean, I, I was really surprised that he was so willing to go through this with me. And, you know, I, I spoke with him probably four or five times, you know, for pretty lengthy phone conversations. It was just really interesting to be able to hear from him. 
Well, a couple other things. He's written a book, and there's two chapters about this, that, and he's shopping this book around. But he also told you that he does not believe he did anything wrong. I mean, that the value of this story, you know, we all, whenever we write about people who are charged for fairness, you want to be able to put their side in right. for obvious reasons. They don't give it because anything they say can and will be used against them. Writing a book, a little bit dangerous because I'm sure prosecutors, if they ever get hands on it, will want to use it against him. But he maintained to you, hey, look, I didn't do anything wrong. I expect to be exonerated, right? Yeah. And we talked about this, you know, when I came on shortly after the arrest, where there's this whole defense that what they were doing was kind of politics as usual. And and his, you know, the the prosecutors alleged that they they took the $60 million that First Energy and their affiliates provided and basically spent it on political ads and stuff like that, that helped householder become speakers that they could then pass this bill. And so what he said in talking to me was basically like, look, you know, I didn't make the rules for these uh, 501c4 groups that do this kind of political spending that's secret. You can't tell where it's coming from. And you know, he said the rules are wide open. You know, we can do stuff like this. And he's his lawyers previously said that his actions um, were guided by other lawyers and signed off on and stuff like that. So that's that's kind of what he says. You know, I, you know, he didn't put it in these words exactly, but he would say it's not pretty. But he feels that because it's kind of the Wild West when it comes to what these groups can and can't do, that there's no uh, that what he did wasn't a crime. Well, you did great work on this thing. I um, I'm really impressed with what you're doing on the HB6 scandal. I know you have other things in the works. People should check out your story on Cleveland.com. Just search for Tobias and Clark and it'll come up. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Didn't we ask this question yesterday? What's the new Ohio one-day record for coronavirus cases? And how many have shown up in schools? How many counties have gone red on the risk chart? Lord Johnston, we are an absolute freefall in Ohio right now. This is bad. This is really bad. Um, Ohio set a record for the third time in a week. We had 2,178 coronavirus cases reported on Thursday. So of those, uh, well, I don't know which day these came up, but 589 new student cases in K-12 schools in the last week, 292 school staff in the last week, and now 29 of Ohio counties, including Cuyahoga County, are on red alert, I believe. We're talking about 85% of Ohioans live in a red or orange county. If you saw that map that Mike DeWine put up yesterday, there was like a very small segment in like the southeast corner of the state that was yellow, but pretty much we are all in an area where there is high spread of the coronavirus. So school itself doesn't seem to be the driving surge. What DeWine said officials are seeing, and we still don't have definitive contact tracing information, is that unofficial school events like bonfires or homecoming, they might be driving this. He keeps pointing to these family and friend gatherings where people are not wearing masks. That is really driving the surge. You know what, though? I'm throwing the flag because he can't say that. All he has is anecdotal. We've been really patient and we're continuing to work with the state on this, but they have done thousands and thousands of contact tracings. They've put all that information into a database that they say is old and not searchable. And our response to that has been, get some clerks together, go through it, make something that's searchable, which they say they may may do. But what what really blows my mind at this point is they have all the data and they're not doing anything to make it readable. And so you can't tell me that it's family gatherings if you don't do the analysis to show it. All you have is anecdotal. You have public health directors saying, yeah, yeah, Governor, we're seeing some family gatherings. But that's not data. It's not definitive. I, I really 
think the state is failing the population in a huge way here and not using the data they have to to get this out. It sounds like they might be making progress. And, and again, we're being patient and, and hoping that this comes out. But it's it's a problem. You say it's not a problem in the schools. But if I look at the trajectory of the numbers of students and the numbers of staff that are being reported each week, that is a sharp curve upwards. If that curve continues, we'll be in the multiple thousands in three more weeks. How, you know, how do you say it's not a problem in schools? Or is that just the wishful thinking of a mom who has her kids going to class? <laughs> um, well, I mean, the numbers are obviously, it's not the giant percentage of this. There's still a small percentage of the cases. But you're right that people are starting to, to look at this again. Pete Krause had a story that went up late yesterday. Lakewood announced it's postponing plans to begin in-person learning on Monday. Shaker and Cleveland Heights University Heights are indicating that they might change their plans. The Board of Health isn't issuing new recommendations right now, but they they originally said, if you're red, we recommend remote learning. Um, so, so when will they? I mean, they're not making recommendations. We're in a free fall. We're in a crisis in the state. When do you start making recommendations? Look, we're lucky. We have Andrew Tobias here. He's <laughs> one of our state house reporters. Andrew, you 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 know you've gotten to know the governor. You've gotten to know what's going on down there. Mike DeWine, who took huge, bold steps at the beginning of this, is loath to take those bold steps now, basically saying, look, I've armed people with the information they need to to avoid this, wear the damn mask. But but again, he said yesterday he's not prepared to do anything. Why do you think he's so hesitant now when he was so bold back in March? I mean, the, the governor, as part of his kind of like philosophy being governor, he's made um, comments that he supports local control and letting communities kind of come up with their own rules for themselves, um, which, you know, has been has showed up in in certain like pieces of legislation that he would sign or wouldn't sign and stuff like that. So I think that's part of it. But I think that, you know, uh, there's an element of this where the more that he takes ownership, like the, the more that he says what people should do, the more he's politically taking ownership of it. And I think that he wants, you know, by not being heavy handed on this, it's, it's, he's not going to, you know, be in the line of fire as much as he would be as he basically, you know, isn't is a lot of things. So I think it may be a little bit of political kind of considerations as well as kind of what the way he approaches this stuff. Chris Wernowski, during the briefings, you and I often correspond in, you know, I've sensed some frustration that we're not taking some bold steps. You talk about the number of people dying and, and how dangerous this is. Did you get a sense yesterday that he might be wavering? When he he wasn't he he wasn't unequivocal this time saying I'm not doing anything he kind of left it open. Well, you know, I mean, you have to kind of leave all options open. I, you know, he he's he's never shut the door on anything really. You know, he he he's always sort of he always leaves it hanging with a we'll wait and see what happens and and that's you know it's kind of an interesting trick, but I understand why he does it because you know if. If he makes a definitive declaration that I'm never going to shut the state down again, then that kind of puts him in a bind. You know, maybe he's just worried about getting, you know, charged in court and arrested and dragged out of his house <laughs> <laughs> or kidnapped by lunatics. Right. I mean, right. it's the. Yeah. But it's, you know, the, the thing that we talk about a lot is just how how weirdly messaged this is sometimes where, you know, it's it's th- these briefings start out with him being very 
upbeat and, you know, talking about all the things that are going on, you know, like football games and all that. And then he, and then he was, and now for some really grim news, but you know, he's, it's interesting that the coronavirus is sort of taking center stage at these briefings again, where, you know, we, you know, when the numbers were going down, other issues around the state were sort of taking the forefront. You know, he would talk about gun violence, but, you know, these things have started to become solely about the coronavirus again, that, that we, you know, it, 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 with these numbers going up so much, we, we really do need to focus on it, I think. And, and I guess to answer your question, I, you know, I, you know, I hope, I, I hope that, you know, we, we get some action, you know, it, you know, Andrew talked about local control and all that stuff. It's, it's, it's amazing to me how, how sort of wishwashy a lot of state politicians are about the local control issue. And so, yeah, right. you know, it's, 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 it's like a, you're on your own when it comes to gun legislation. It's like, hold up, the state knows better than you. And, and yeah. so, you know, I, I buy that and I, and I get it. I, you know, he has, he has some very kind of libertarian leanings in that vein that, that all the, you know, all these communities can decide for themselves. But I, you know, it's, I, I wonder where you draw that line and where you say, okay, we have trusted you to do the right thing and we can no longer trust oh, you. Well, I get and, back and, and I, you can't, you can't write tickets yeah. for people. Not wearing yeah. Masks. Right. We talked about this sure what you can do, but anyway, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. How did Shaker Heights police resolve the case of the officer who gave the finger to Black Lives Matter protesters the night of the presidential debate in Cleveland? Chris Ranesky, this was an emphatic statement by the government of Shaker Heights that I was not expecting. I mean, in Cleveland, people shoot people and don't get fired. What happened here? Yeah, so they, they dismissed this police officer who gave the finger to a group of protesters in and it's interesting they kind of set the stage earlier this week by releasing his personnel file which contained um a couple of very negative performance reviews over the past couple of years for the officer and and you know they talked about his attitude toward the job his outspokenness about his his displeasure for being passed over for a job promotion and yesterday kind of late in the day they sent out noticed that that he had been terminated. It's fascinating because we started this week having a debate over whether writing about his personnel file was appropriate or not, because, you know, it's, you know, know, police officers have been accused of way worse than than flipping off a group of protesters. But, you know, in the in the context of what people were protesting, I thought it was important that we talk about this guy's history as a police officer. And it turns out it ended up being very relevant at the end of the story. So I'm, I'm glad we wrote about it. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What are the big dreams for remaking Cleveland Hopkins International Airport and how much might they cost? Lord Johnston, this is a fairly simple thing. They've got all sorts of dreams. There's no chance they're going to do it because it'll cost a billion dollars <laughs> and the airlines won't give them the money because they're broke. But 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 the one bright spot is they do acknowledge that what we have is trash. So what what what's the what's the vision? I don't know why you need me to answer any of this question. Then so there's three possibilities: um, a complete rebuild of the terminal on the existing site with two parallel buildings connected via underground tunnel. Uh, there's a version that maintains the existing terminal footprint, mostly intact, with an elongated, elongated concourse B, a widened concourse C, and a reopened concourse D. That's that one that's off on its own that's been closed 
since the hub closed. Um, a combination rebuild renovation that would keep concourse A, but replace concourses B, C, and D. So they didn't put a price on any of these, but it'll likely exceed a billion dollars. And the cost would go to those airlines, which we all know are struggling just insane amounts right now because of the coronavirus. So they- what? But I, what I do love about this is it was about three, four years ago, I was in a debate with some of the poobahs in town. I'm not going to say who they were arguing that that we have the worst airport pretty much in the country. It's just a disaster. It's it's small. It's pain. It's just a horrible place. You go to any place else in the country, you fly into their wonderful airports and you come back to Cleveland. It's like, oh, my God. And I, these I guys completely were, disagree with you. But they, okay. these guys, these guys were arguing with me that, no, 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 that's not the problem. But now they're all on board. They, they want to just get rid of what we have and build something modern so that we're attractive once again to the rest of the world. How can you disagree with me? <laughs> if you there's flown? no one there ever. And it's the easiest place to get in and out. It's, uh, I mean, you go to crazy. like Atlanta and you have to like get on a, you know, underground, um, you know, bullet train. But no, they, they do agree that they want more ticketing and gate space. They want additional parking, more efficient and larger security and customs areas. <laughs> I don't know who's flying a 21st in. 21st century <laughs> airport instead of something that was defined, you know, designed in 1950. I but, get that. But I just don't see where the money is going to come from, especially in this day and age. But they think. Well, no, the only way you're going to get it, there's no way that Cleveland can pull that off. You would have to create a regional airport authority, right. you know, that has that, that deals with Akron Canton and Richmond and, and, and do air service, right, Burke, as air service as the regional service that it is instead of this nonsense where Cleveland owns the airport and can't really afford to do anything with it. Can I, can I, I, you know, what's interesting is that I, I read a story a few, maybe like last year that Memphis actually managed to save a lot of money by, by downsizing their airport a little bit by, by sort of, limiting their ambition as as a, a as a hub like when they had they, they were in a similar situation like us where you know they built this expensive terminal they they expanded the airport and then you know they stopped being a a hub you know detroit and and georgia you know atlanta and, and all these other cities are sort of the, the big hubs and and what they stopped doing was sort of chasing that big idea and and sort of they downsized their airport and they sort of limited their ambition, which gave them a more modern airport that was actually not a, a money losing effort. And, and so I, you know, I wonder if in the absence of, of ever be, being able to sort of wrangle the kind of political will among the various counties and entities that it would require to make a true international airport hub for this region that the Cleveland would not look at, something that would that might actually be much more sensible for this region but i don't think so though the gcp was um had a meeting with us what was it this week and they were talking about that for us to be serious for business we actually need a true international set of gates i mean we have what are called international gates now but the but they're arguing that look the, the, the problem for that airport is business i mean business people hate the airport because you can't get anywhere. One of the reasons you can't get anywhere is because landing fees to the airlines are kind of high. We don't have a lot of the flights. If you could create some way of paying for the airport, you know, with a quarter cent regional gas tax or something that greatly reduce landing fees, you make that airport much more 
attractive, but it, it should be more attractive. We got, I want to get to two more, so I'm going to close this down. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Who's the most loyal Ohio Republican to Donald Trump? And this one's a surprise. Who is rated the least? Chris Ranaski? It's weird that you're pitching to me for this. Andrew's on the podcast and he wrote the story. <laughs> hey, you know what? Hey, when I put this together, Andrew wasn't on the podcast. Andrew. No, I want to hear what Chris thinks about it. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so the, the, so basically uh, the website Axios uh, came up with a loyalty index. They basically uh, took a look at how different Republican members of Congress responded to seven of uh, President Donald Trump's most controversial moments. And it's his greatest hits people. It's things like the Axis Hollywood tape, the, you know, good people on both sides comment he made after the uh, events at Charlottesville, Virginia, and so on. And they also factored in their voting record and how often they voted with Trump on legislation. And so ranking in the top was uh, Representative Bill Johnson, who's not the most highest uh, profile member of Congress in Ohio. He represents, he's from Marietta. He represents the Eastern Ohio. It's a lot of the kind of Appalachian parts of the state. I was surprised, by the way, that Jim Jordan did not finish first. So he was. Yeah, that's a shock, you know, man. Wow. Yeah. He, <laughs> so he was similarly supportive, sort of the, the they, they graded the statements that they made and it's kind of subjective, but his uh, voting record actually was a little bit less than everybody else. But then the lowest rating uh, came from uh, Senator Rob Portman. And I think that like there's this perception among Democrats in Ohio that Portman kind of just, you know, never really has a stands up to Trump and kind of really speaks up uh, for himself and that kind of thing. Perception but, on this podcast of that. Right. So, yeah. But he actually, he ranks, um, you know, in, in this rating, which granted is, is not like scientific or anything like that. He was 43rd of 48 Republican senators and he was just above, you know, Cory Gardner was there. And I wouldn't say that, you know, he's, you know, maybe he's kind of similar to Portman, but down there was like Mitt Romney who voted to impeach him. Um, you know, <laughs> Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, who are, both uh, people who have voted against really key legislation. So it's kind of interesting. And I, I thought that, you know, the story was a fun way to kind of look at how our Congress members basically have, have dealt with the president over the years. Here's the thing, you know, Portman, if he runs again, and I'm not sure he will, because he's taken a beating the last four years, but he's up in two years. You know, if Donald Trump loses, as it looks like is probably going to happen, and the nation gets far enough down the road, whoever runs against him, I would have thought, would have used his support for Donald Trump against him. But now he has this. And he could say, hey, I'm the lowest ranking Republican for support of Donald Trump. Yeah, and I wasn't sure how he's going to handle that. But like, you know, so on the one hand, uh, Johnson's people, I think, were thrilled that there's a headline out there saying he's the most loyal pro-Trump member of of Congress now. But uh, the statement I got out of Portman's office was something like, you know, Senator Portman is an independent voice for Ohioans. And so I, I wasn't sure if maybe you know, they'd be upset about it, but they actually kind of owned it too, which I thought was interesting. You no, know, I think, I think this becomes an asset for him if he chooses to run again. I was just, I would never have bet that he would have been the, the lowest in Ohio. Anyway, I'm glad you did the story. It was interesting. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Why can't Ohio compel voters to wear masks if they vote in person at the polls? Laura Johnston, this seemed like a no-brainer until you heard the reasons for it, and then you thought, okay, that's actually legitimate. What is the reason that Mike DeWine articulated yesterday for that? Yeah, this does make a lot of sense. You cannot mess with someone's constitutional right to vote. I guess Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose offered guidance to county boards back in August, and Andrew again wrote about this, so he can talk about it too. But he said they can't be turned away for wearing one, so poll workers are supposed to offer people masks or suggest curbside voting if they won't do it, but they can't send them home if they don't have a mask. You know, Andrew, timing is everything. You wrote that story, and it was kind of a blip on the radar. But this week, 
poll workers are being trained and you know there's an army of them going into the polls and they're being told hey you can't make people wear masks and their eyes are popping out of their head they're going to be spending hours all day down at the polls with people who might be breathing out coronavirus and so we we leapt on it and we're instantly reminded well you know andrew wrote about this a while ago but but it did come up ahead of your time we did we did laura hancock did ask the question of dewine yesterday saying hey there's a rule in Ohio that you have to wear a mask. How does it not apply? But, you know, this is the kind of rule that they would use down in the South to discriminate uh, against voting. And so you do have to be very careful on putting any requirements on people to cast their ballot. You just can't do it because that can be abused. They are, though, advocating, right, Andrew, that everybody wear a mask? Yeah, the you know, the the training that poll workers are going through, and I just know what I'm told, so I haven't experienced it or anything like that, is that they basically say, hey, wear a mask, you know, please really wear a mask, um, offer them a mask. And if they ultimately say no, then, you know, they're, they're supposed to give them an option of voting outside somehow or finding some kind of alternative uh, accommodation. But they're being trained in de-escalation tactics. And I mean, it's just kind of odd to think about elections workers having to uh, be put in that kind of situation. But um you know, there actually was a story out of Belmont County that I haven't really read closely or anything like that, where there was some kind of episode at an early voting center this week. But the people that I've talked to about this say that, generally speaking, that people accept the restrictions. You kind of always hear about the outliers. And obviously, it's important that it only takes one person in terms of spreading a, a disease and stuff like that. But but what I hear is that, by and large, people kind of accept that this is just something that you have to do. This is Chris Warnowski. I, I voted early, and I have to say I was – everybody, everybody was wearing a mask. And so it was it was a good sign, and, and you know, and I know, you know, we live in a urban area where, you know, mask wearing is probably – yeah. much higher frequency and and there's not a lot of conspiracy theory around the idea of wearing one so you know so i i mean it'd be yeah, interesting to see out in out in the counties where where people are are you know less likely and i'm not saying for like crazy reasons i'm just saying that you know out there that people just assume they're safer because it's more spread out and it's not right. people aren't on sorry chris gotta shut you no, down go. we're out of time this this week in the cle Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Andrew. I think you wrote every story we talked about today. I don't know what your <laughs> colleagues are doing. This week in the CLE, we'll return on Monday.